Mr. Luxon, you have assured me that you are able to lead a government that can command the confidence of the House of Representatives. I now ask you to confirm that you can lead such a government. So now I confirm that I can. It was supposed to be Christopher Luxon's big moment. Until it was Winston's and his war with the media. First at the signing of the coalition deal. Please do not be mathematical morons. Then at the swearing in at Government House. You cannot depend $55 million of bribery. Get it very clear. And trebling down at the first cabinet meeting. Tell that I think what you uh, had to sign up to to get the money. But after nearly a week of Winston, the new Prime Minister swung the pendulum back announcing an almighty 100-day policy plan at his first post-Cabinet press conference. We're going to do more in 100 days than this government did in the last six years. And yet still being forced to answer questions about his calamitous colleague. Well, it's not the way that I would have expressed it, but I understand the frustration with the fund, that it actually leads to perceptions of bias, rightly or wrongly. You know, that, that's the perception. Whether that's real or not doesn't really matter. Kia ora, I'm Tova O'Brien. Welcome to the pod. Two years ago, New Zealand basked in the glory of being a global trendsetter. A unique plan to prevent future generations from taking up smoking is taking hold in New Zealand. It's being called one of the world's toughest crackdowns on tobacco. New Zealand is planning to ban young people from ever buying cigarettes in their entire lifetimes. With our new government incoming, the plaudits have turned to ash. The world's first generational smoking ban is being released. Smoking is the leading cause of preventable deaths in New Zealand. 5,000 people die every year through cancer, strokes and heart disease. And one of the biggest surprises in the coalition agreements, the plan to repeal our world-leading smoke-free reforms. New Zealand health experts are fuming, including Professor Janet Hook from Otago University, who we speak to shortly. She debunks with evidence basically every claim the new government's making to justify its shock reversal. We also speak to Phil Barry, director of TDB Advisory, which did a massive report last year arguing the smoke-free amendments were redundant and highly costly. That report was commissioned by tobacco companies. We also talked to former Health Minister Aisha Verrill, who introduced the smoke-free changes, and one of the young New Zealanders, 14-year-old Portato Clark, who inspired her. Plus, must-hear analysis after a must-watch week of politics from Andrea Vance and Luke Malpass. We'll have my take on the Winston Peters show in The Upshot, and my weekly highlight, your feedback. That's what we do have on the pod. What we don't have, thanks to a series of rebuffs and refusal from National Act and New Zealand First, is right of reply from the government. Chris Luxon, Winston Peters, David Seymour, they all refused to be interviewed. Nationals Shane Retty, the new health minister, he also refused to come on to explain or to back his government's smoke-free kibosh. With that, welcome to our Durries special, Up in Smoke, the end of New Zealand's world's first smoke-free laws. 14-year-old Portato Clark has been outspoken on smoking, rallying against tobacco companies as part of a group of Wainui Amata rangatahi known as the Hashtags. We got in touch with him to ask him why he cared and what he thought about the new government's repeal of the smoking reforms. I am passionate about smoke-free laws because government can help 
save Māori's lives, that's one of their um, responsibilities. I think that um, National shouldn't be making these changes for us, because when they make these changes, it's going to have a big impact on Māori and others. Around school, if boys head to um, bathrooms and stuff to um, vape and things like that, and at home, my dad smokes outside and sports grounds and things like that. And how how does that make you feel seeing whānau and friends smoking and vaping? It doesn't it doesn't feel too good because um it can affect people's lungs and I'm scared they're gonna be hurt and harmed. Professor Janet Hook is from the Department of Public Health at the University of Otago, researching tobacco, smoking and the impacts it has on our health. That's her MO and her work has informed policy both here and overseas. Janet, thank you very much for coming on the pod. Oh, well, Kia Otago, thank you for inviting me. You know your staff. Maybe just give people quickly and better explaining than I just did the work that you do, your evidence base, where, where you're coming from today. Yeah, sure. So I co-direct the Asaya Aotearoa Centre, which is based at the University of Otago in Wellington. The work that we've been doing has been designed to inform realisation of the Smoke-Free 2025 goal. So we've looked at measures that would bring about rapid reductions in smoking prevalence and do that in an equitable way. So then when you saw the coalition agreements announced last week, um, saw what the government was doing with the work that you have been doing, what was your reaction? Look, we were just appalled. Um, There's really no other word to describe it. We were shocked. We were disgusted. This decision is not something that National campaigned on. In fact, when we go back and have a look at uh, Shane Rieti's comments during the third reading of the Smoke-Free Environments Act, uh, Amendment Act, we saw that he came out strongly in support of the measures. His quibble was not with the measures, it was with the sequence that the government of the time had proposed. So it just seems a complete about-face. And, and they, they might argue MMP and that the New Zealand First and Act parties both did have that in their manifestos to, to varying degrees. But let's just maybe unpick some of the arguments that they have used against the legislation. So crime and ram raids, if we limit the number of places that can sell tobacco, the black market that would materialise and people switching to homegrown. If we can work through each of those, maybe starting with, with homegrown, you don't think that's going to become a, a massive workaround for, for people? No, I don't. I mean, we've done some in-depth work with people who smoke, uh, trying to explore with them how they would respond to the retail reduction measure. And one of the things that we probed was their use and interest in using uh, homegrown tobacco. Now, homegrown tobacco obviously doesn't have any of the additives that tobacco companies put into tobacco to make it more palatable and uh, to to deliver nicotine more quickly. So. Um, most of the people we talked to had tried homegrown tobacco, and I've just got a couple of quotes here. They described it as disgusting, feral, foul, and rubbish. Now, right. <laughs> they are not adjectives that you would be using if you anticipated uh, switching to homegrown tobacco as a long-term supply option. The black market as well. You've done research in this area too, haven't you? Yeah, I, I think that, um, that this came really just buys into tobacco companies scaremongering. And I think uh, when it, it's really interesting to note that when Luxon and Reti have been asked 
to the evidence that they are using to support claims that the black market would become a major threat. All they've done is to come up with a couple of very vague assertions about what retailers have been telling them. I mean, this is a government that said it's one of the principles in its coalition agreement that it is going to be basing its decisions on evidence. Well, here is a little bit of evidence for them. We have done pack collection studies. Uh, we've conducted three of those, led by my colleague, Professor Nick Wilson. And what we have found in those is that the proportion of foreign packs, which is clearly an indicator of illicit tobacco coming into the country, has remained stable over time. So it's really important that we recognise that because those studies were undertaken at times when we had large price increases through the excise tax that used to be increased uh, every year, and it was also at a time when we had plain packaging. Now, if we go back to tobacco companies' claims at that time, they argued that these measures would see a rapid escalation in black market tobacco. It just didn't happen. Is there anything to say that, though, if you really choke the industry in the way that this legislation would, is there anything to say that that wouldn't create a black market? Because that's a much more dramatic shift, isn't it? Look, I think what, when we have a look at the modelling evidence for denicotinisation, what we see is that this measure will bring about a really rapid reduction in smoking prevalence. Like, it, it's just unbelievable how quickly that decline is predicted to occur. And so I think what we need to do is to recognise that the size of the market that might be interested in illicit tobacco is going to reduce really quickly so if we're concerned, I mean, it se might seem ironic, but actually, if we're concerned about a black market, then the most intelligent thing to do, the, the most evidence-based thing to do, is to introduce these measures as quickly as possible and decrease the, the number of people who might be interested in uh, in illicit tobacco. And I want to come back to the crime and ram raids argument in just a tick, but the on denicotine, I can't say the word, is that for me? De, de, Denicotinisation. Denicotinisation. On that, um, you say it's going to have a, a rapid impact. I read somewhere Ash um, Action Smoke Free Aotearoa saying something against the evidence base of it, and I, I saw that the Greens as well during the debate on the legislation in the Parliament had been calling it into question as well. Is there a strong evidence base for it? Yes, there is. I mean, there was uh, a critique that was uh, issued at the modelling. Um, I wasn't involved in that modelling work myself, but my colleagues issued an extremely robust response to that critique, uh, which they argued was based on some incorrect assumptions about how the modelling had been undertaken. So I don't think that anybody has stepped back from the evidence. In fact, that was an opportunity to explain exactly why the modelling evidence is as strong as it is. Okay, and and yeah, on crime and ram raids, and this seems to be, I mean, this seems to me a, a compelling argument. On the one hand, um, if you limit the number of outlets that can sell tobacco, how do you protect some of those rural outlets if people would end up fling-dinging into to major centres and that's a, a major revenue stream for them, or perhaps the people who go and buy milk and other things from, from the dairy. And then on the other hand, how do you protect those people uh, who are the only retailer when cigarettes or tobacco are a, a, a major driver of, of retail crime? Well, look, let's uh, look at the first point that you brought up, which is really about tobacco products driving footfall and 
um, making sure that people who come into small retail outlets to buy tobacco also buy other products while we're there. Well, I think we, we need to recognise that tobacco is actually a really low margin pro uh, product for retailers. Um, and so their hope is that when people are buying tobacco, they're also going to be buying more profitable products. The reality is, uh, through footfall studies that we've undertaken, most tobacco products are single item products. So two studies that we've undertaken, only 5% of tobacco purchases involved purchases of other products. So it's not driving footfall and it's not driving purchase of more profitable products. If we have a look at the second argument that you raised, which is about store security and challenges that retailers who, who choose to sell tobacco might face, I think we need to recognise that the Ministry of Health had a really robust uh, approvals process in place. They had a series of criteria that they were looking at, including staff training. But one of the most important criteria they were examining was the store's security. So they were clearly looking for outlets that had good security and probably things like bollards that would make it very difficult for the kinds of ram raids that are being reported now to take place. I think we also need to remember that from the 1st of April 2025, um, the only kind of, of tobacco that would have been sold would have been denicotinized tobacco, which we know is not going to be popular among people who smoke. So the incentive for conducting RAM rates would simply disappear when that product is the only one available. And I think that the final thing that we need to look at is that actually all three coalition parties talk a great deal about freedom and choice. Mm. No one is forcing retailers to sell tobacco. So if they are worried about crime, they've got a very simple option. They do not need to sell this product. And let's let's talk about that. I want to go through a couple more of the arguments from them, but just on the um, the freedom and, and choice argument, you interview extensively, and I, as a former smoker, I didn't feel like there was a lot of personal choice um, when I tried when I tried to quit because it's damn hard. You talk to to serious smokers all the time about that personal choice that they're making. Absolutely. I mean, no one who takes up smoking, and I think we need to remember that most people who smoked today took up smoking when they were young people, when they thought that they were experimenting with a casual social practice, and when I think virtually none of them anticipated that this could become a lifelong addiction. So this is not a choice that people make. In fact, I just want to, to share with you a quote. Um, when we were talking with young people about the smoke-free generation policy, we talked to young people who smoke as well as young people who don't. And here's what one young woman who smoked said. She said, whether it's the government taking your choice by introducing a smoke-free generation or you being addicted to smokes, you've got no choice either way. If you're addicted to smoking, it's not like you're choosing to buy smokes. So I think that, to me, that just sums it up. This is not about freedom of choice. And I think we need to go back and recognise also that people who smoke deeply regret having started to smoke. 80% of them wished that they'd never started. I mean, that's an astonishing level of regret. And the people who I've talked to, they've tried multiple times to quit. As you've said, it's a very difficult journey to navigate. So this is not about freedom and choice. It's about recognising that tobacco is a lethal product, that it kills two-thirds of its long-term users, and that we shouldn't be treating it as so though it's an everyday consumer item.
And and picking up on the smoke-free generation there as well, Christopher Luxon has said, how does that get enforced? You'd have a 36-year-old who can smoke, a 35-year-old who can't. That doesn't make a lot of sense, he says. What do you say to that? Look, I think it's absolutely ludicrous to try and run that line of argument. Um, The whole point of introducing these complementary measures is that neither age, no age, is going to be interested in smoking and using tobacco because it's not going to be widely available and it's not going to be addictive. So, I mean, you know, if he's claiming that he wants to be interested in making evidence-based decisions, he needs to get in touch with the evidence. And what, what's your view on uh, Nicola Willis saying, the, the finance minister saying that the revenue from excise on tobacco is going to be used to fund the government's planned tax cuts? It's absolutely disgusting to think that the predominantly poor people who smoke, most of whom are desperate to quit, are going to be funding tax cuts for the predominantly better of people, the majority of whom don't smoke. And what kind of a society is that going to create? And I want to ask you, Janet, about the language uh, that you're hearing from the the government partners and also, again, looking to the New Zealand First uh, manifesto. It talks about access to nicotine, which in adults is generally as safe as caffeine is. If if we have a look at tobacco companies' submissions to the various um, public consultation processes that were run as the legislation, the action plan and the regulations were going through, it is exactly the rhetoric that we have heard from tobacco companies. In fact, it's it's just astonishing to see the similarities in the arguments and the rhetoric that have been used. Is that not just the government taking into account different perspectives, though, which is what a select committee process is about? Uh, I think it's um, important to realise that the select committee heard those arguments and rejected them. So, I mean, the select committee was clearly capable of reviewing and weighing up evidence and came down very firmly on the side of the empirical robust evidence that was presented to it, not the kind of flimsy anecdotal uh, logic bereft arguments that were put to it by tobacco companies. Do you think that the government partners, National Act, New Zealand First, do you think they are directly parroting big tobacco? I mean, I can't say where they're getting those arguments from. All I can do is point out that in my reading, there are some uncomfortable similarities between what they're saying and what I've seen in industry submissions. What's your reading of Shane Letty, the new health minister's, what he's saying about the repealing of the the smoke-free legislation versus what you'd heard from the National Party and Dr Letty when they were in opposition? Uh, During the third reading, uh, the National Party came out with statements saying that they strongly supported denicotinisation. In fact, they argued very strongly Dr Reti put forth supplementary order papers trying to change the order of implementation of the measures so that denicotinisation came first. I think it's absolutely astonishing to see that he now seems to have fallen into line uh, with a party that's no longer looking at the evidence and is not supporting the, these measures, which he knows would bring profound benefits to his people. And how many lives were expected to be saved as a result of these measures, which potentially the counterfactual, we could argue, could be lost if, if they're repealed? Well, the modelling work that my colleagues have undertaken estimated that over the next 20 years, um, we would have saved more than 8,000 lives. 
Um, and of course, that number would increase over time as we the, as we see the effect of rapidly uh, decreased smoking um, and particularly smoking uptake among young people. So what is the counterfactual then if you repeal these measures? Well, we're, we're simply going to see more people dying. I mean, 5,000 New Zealanders die every single year and that number is going to continue. Are we going to see the slow declines in smoking prevalence continue? We're going to see the appalling health effects, the heart disease, the cancers, the many other diseases, and of course the suffering that people who smoke uh, have to manage as well. All of that is going to continue uh, uh, so needlessly. And that's on this government? Absolutely. I, I mean, they had an opportunity to show moral courage, strength, leadership, and they've just foregone those opportunities. I mean, I guess the only thing that we can hope, uh, and I guess the real silver lining to this uh, this experience, is that so many people have come out to express their dismay and disgust at, what ha- is, at, at what's happened. And I think Luxon actually has an opportunity to make a captain's call, to say, I got it wrong, to demonstrate some courage, to show that he's not simply being pushed around by the minor parties. You say, I got it wrong. A good leader recognises a mistake and puts it right. Well, time will tell. Uh, Thank you so much, Janet, for your time and for debunking, I think, a lot of the arguments that have been used uh, to promote this new policy direction from the government. Thanks, Janet. Thanks for having me. Let's now talk to someone I'm sure who'll want a chance to respond to that evidence-based debunking from the University of Otago. Phil Barry is the director of TDB. They are economic and financial advisors and he co-authored a cost-effectiveness report last year with Infometrics that was commissioned by British American Tobacco, Imperial Brands and Japan Tobacco International. It found Labor's smoke-free measures now being repealed are largely, if not entirely redundant and highly costly. Phil Barry joins me now. Thank you very much for coming on the pod. Good to be here. Have you ever uh, lobbied National Act New Zealand First on behalf of the tobacco industry at any point? Never. We've had no engagement at all with any party of any persuasion. And what do you say to public health health experts like Janet, who we've just heard from, who say we are simply going to see more New Zealanders dying as a result of this reversal. 5,000 New Zealanders die every year. That is going to continue thanks to this government. Well, look, what our report found was three key things. Firstly, we found that the policies that are in place currently are working very well. The increase in tax rates, they're allowing people to, to, to switch to vaping if they want to, and the Basically, the education, getting people up and realising that smoking is bad for you. Is it, working th- for, is, it, is it working for Māori? Sorry, can I just interject so, there yeah, quickly? Those three things are working, and what we've seen, Tova, is smoking rates plummeting. And not just not just across the board, but also for Māori, and in particular Māori women, where it's really great to see. Still very high, still way too high, up around 20%. But mm. if we look at the big picture to start... Smoking rates had come down from about 18% 10 years ago. Most recent figures, 2022, 8% of the population is smoking. So that's a decline of about 1% per annum in the population. And, that, and by our projections, we're on track 
to achieve the smoke-free target 5% by around 2026. Without for, Ma- for Māori as well? Sorry, without doing anything more. So the, and, the that's, second, and that's for Māori as well? Māori will be yeah, under 5%? Then, then we come, come back, no, no, absolutely not. Um, but the second thing Doesn't we sound very equitable. <laughs> well, let's, let's come to that because it's a very important question. But can I, can I just repeat the, the, the three things we found? So the first Thanks. thing is we're on track already to achieve the smoke-free target by 2026. Second thing we found is that the amendment legislation that was introduced last year is going to be highly costly. It's going to impose, we think, about $1.3 billion of unnecessary costs on the economy. Unnecessary because we're already going to achieve the target. And and unnecessary because that's a very costly and expensive way of going about achieving further reductions. Um, the third thing we, we find is actually some of these measures that have been introduced could be counterproductive. They could actually, could for some groups, lead to more smoking rather than less. They could, they certainly will lead to more crime and more black market activity. Um, so coming to your question about, about the Murray rate, because that, and Murray and Pacific Islanders, their smoking rates are still way above the average. They're coming down. But the question we raise is, is a broad brush blanket policy of banning cigarettes the most effective way to actually address the problem for a, for a particular group in, the, in society? Who are I suppose the, the, yeah, I suppose the argument that if you're going to save 8,000 lives over 20 years, you want to save those lives. So Absolutely. Absolutely agree. The thing, you don't think- the thing we're saying, Toba, is that we're taking as given that we want to save lives. The question is, what's the best way to do that? It's a little bit like, say, you know, there's an intersection on a motorway and you want to either build a bridge to avoid the damage, to, the, to, to avoid the accidents, or you build a tunnel. If the bridge costs a million dollars and the tunnel costs $10 million, which one do you do? You do the one that's going to save the most lives based on the evidence base. You you said there that no, you no, there would no, certainly... No, no, sorry. My question was, they're both going to save lives. Do you do the one that costs a million dollars or do the one that costs $10 million? Obviously, you try and achieve your objectives in the least cost way. The problem with this legislation is that it's imposing a whole lot of unnecessary costs. It's building a bridge where a tunnel would do. Okay, but but the counter argument is that I've seen another study. You say one point three billion dollars over ten years. I've seen another study from a bunch of public health experts here in uh, New Zealand and Australia that say it would save the health system one point three billion dollars. Well, well, firstly, we're not just talking about the health system. We need to take a whole well-being approach to this. Okay, so if we're imposing costs on another part of society, it's saving health. Cost, that's not necessarily a win for New Zealanders as a whole. And that really matters here because if we look at the, the policy process that the government went through here, it really only got advice from one agency, the Ministry of Health. A little bit yes, from but, they're the health, but they're the health experts, right? So do you not think that a health first response is the right response? Um, I think, of course, they're the experts when it comes to health matters. 
but we need to take a whole of government approach to these things. If we're simply shifting costs from the health sector to the justice sector, because there's going to be a whole lot more crime and, and, and harm to people that way, is it really an improvement? But it's not just about the costs, though, is it? And I recognise that that's where your report focused, but it's about saving It's about saving those lives. I want to pick up on what you said, that there would certainly be more crime. Would there certainly be more crime? What evidence do you have of that? Well, that's a, a good question, because we like to look at the evidence, and there's plenty of evidence from other countries that have tried to ban tobacco or ban smoking products. Um, can I give you three examples? Please. One is South Africa. During COVID, they put in place a ban on smoking. Great idea, you'd think. Only trouble was, of course, people like nicotine. It's a seriously addictive substance. So if you don't address that demand for nicotine, people just go to other sources. So what did they do? They went to the streets to buy the product. They went to the spazzers and and. Johannesburg, the spazzers and the sort of little house shops. Mm. You know, they, they people find other ways of getting what they want. Can I just um, that's say one the, example? Sorry, another the, example is Bhutan. So um, funny, but the country of Bhutan, north of India, they banned anyone from smoking anything back in 2004. Okay, did it work? No, it didn't work. Basically, we saw a whole lot of black market smuggling. A whole lot, lot of, we saw the government lose tax revenue and the health outcomes really, really different. The World Health Organization found at the end of that exercise, 2019, smoking rates were still around 21%. What did the, the government basically gave up? They said, okay, this so, is dumb so policy and they got rid of the South bank. South Africa and, and Bhutan, these are your examples. The, no, no, the, I said I had the three, health... I'll give you plenty more. <laughs> Uh, okay, yep, then. can we just focus on those two for a moment because okay, I just want to sure. try and do a bit of a comparing contrast because what Janet's just told us from the University of Otago is that they have done a whole lot of research in this area. Um, they've done pack collection studies. They found that the proportion of foreign packs, so illicit cigarette packets in the country, it's remained stable over time. And this was during a time where we saw an enormous spike in tax, uh, tax increases on cigarettes, excise increases and plain packaging. So that's when the industry, the tobacco, industry was also warning us that everyone was going to flood to the black market if we had plain packaging and if we had tax increases, and yet we didn't. No, no, but let's put that in what really matters. Smoking rates are coming down. Yes, black market cigarettes came down as well, but came down slower than overall smoking rates. So what happened was the black black market share of the market increased. Okay. But more, more importantly, and, and look, it's very hard to get hard data on how big the black market is. That's the nature of black markets. But if you look at Customs New Zealand, they're now saying that illegal tobacco products is the largest source of smuggling in New Zealand. And their own seizure rates over the last four years, for which we have data, have gone up from 6 million tobacco sticks equivalent to 24 million. So there's been a fourfold increase in seizures by customs. Can we focus so, in on so the, the other aspect of, of crime is the crime against retailers. This is something we've been hearing from the government. It's something you've addressed in, in your report as well. What, what evidence is there that retailers will face higher crime or RAM raid rates? 
Well, that comes to another element of the package that, of the legislation that we haven't talked about. And this was that the government was planning to reduce the number of retail outlets for mm -hmm. cigarettes from 6,000, as there are currently, to about 600. So what that means is only going to be one shop for 50,000 people in the country there's where people can buy cigarettes. So anecdot well, those, you, those, are you anecdotally stops, assuming that there's going to be an increase in crime or do you know for a fact that that's going to be the, the, the effect? All, all I'm saying here, Tober, is that there's going, we know that there is crime related to tobacco products at the moment. We know there's ram raids. We know that people are, are, are being beaten up and, you know, it's the local corner dairy owner. Gosh, isn't that even now, more of a reason now, not to sell in, cigarettes if they're an incentive for people to, to no, commit those crimes? Shouldn't we get rid of them entirely? I wish life was that simple. Let's just have a magic wand and we'll get rid of... Well, it's kind of what the, the Amendment issue. Act was proposing, isn't it? It comes back to that fundamental issue, Tova, of nicotine been a highly addictive product. But we're going to be people, selling reduced nicotine cigarettes, right? So that's the other the other prong of this amendment act, yep. which is now being appealed. So yeah. in theory, there would have been less demand for those those reduced nicotine cigarettes. No, I don't follow that at all. The demand is still there. You've reduced the supply. You've put constraints on supply. That doesn't shift demand at all. I thought there was Let evidence to show that denicotinisation reduced people's desire to smoke those cigarettes. Let me give you another analogy. In the, the ban on gas and oil exploration, great intentions, nice idea. But what happened was it didn't actually address the demand. Electricity demand is still there. It just meant people we produced electricity from coal-fired stations, not gas-fired. We're doing, a lot, we of, we're doing up, a lot of apples and oranges. We ended up with more emissions rather than less. Okay, we're doing apples and oranges and watermelons. Let's just <laughs> and, and can we look at the lost revenue to the the retailers as well, which is another sure. argument we're we're hearing. Um, we've we've heard from public health experts that cigarettes, tobacco are actually a low margin product product for those retailers. And then footfall studies that those studies that they've done show that people aren't actually going in there and buying liters and liters and liters of milk as well. They tend to go in and just buy the by the durries, so they're not making this extra profit. So it's not about retailers' revenue, is it? It's about the, the bottom lines of those big tobacco companies. It's a good question. I mean, tobacco cigarettes may be a low-margin activity for the retailers, but remember, they're selling them legally. It's for the black market, the gangs and that, it's a very high-margin activity because they're not subject to tax. So question, practical question here, would you rather if you had... Children, would you rather had had um, the children buy cigarettes from a retail outlet, over eighteen, of course, or um, or from a gang? Because that's the question here. It's not a question of let's just ban them. People will go to somewhere that they need to so you, will satisfy what they want. You would like to see a regulated cannabis market in New Zealand then as well. Oh, I had no, no on that logic on, on, on cannabis. We haven't been asked to look at that. Do you think that? Money is more important than lives? I don't understand the question. Well, just the focus on the, the, the revenue here versus the, the 8,000 lives saved. All I can speak of is to our report. And our report, remember, is in cost effect of this study. It's saying, look, our aim is to, to save lives. What's the best way to do that? 
Okay. And you'd still save those 8,000 lives over 20 years, would you, based on the, the, the model that you're promoting? We haven't looked at that. We've just taken the, the smoke-free target as given. We think it's great. We think smoking is bad, no question. And then we're just asking what's the best way to achieve that objective. Is it to build a tunnel or to, or to you know, build a, build a bridge? All right. Hey, thank you, Phil, very, very much for coming on. Thank you. As I mentioned earlier, we wanted to discuss this with the government, but Dr Shane Reti refused. So instead of the new health minister now, let's listen to him speaking about the smoke-free changes last year when he was vastly more supportive. National has never disagreed with the endpoints of nicotine reduction. Never have and we don't hear today, but we do disagree with the process that it purportedly is going to get there. National supports nicotine reduction. National supports the smoke-free goals. In 2011, the national government announced the smoke-free 2025 goals. Let's remember it was goals in our hands. Well, denicotinize. now that does have some weight to it. Being deployed in Colorado as we speak, it actually does have a pathway that is successful. And yet, despite, quote, having some weight to it and having a pathway that is successful, unquote, he'll now be leading the charge nixing those plans. Let's take a listen to another national minister, also supportive of Labour's measures during a parliamentary debate last year, the now mental health minister, Matt Ducey. As Dr Ritty clearly outlined, the National Party agrees with the end goals. In fact, to a point, we actually even agree with the three policy levers of reducing retail shops, denicotisation, and making it illegal for a certain cohort of New Zealanders born after 2009 to buy cigarettes. But why we differ on this side of the House is the order of those three levers. Under this bill, potentially 6,000 small retailers will be reduced to 600. And all we're saying is, yep, that's a lever you can use, but why not pause? Why not use one of your other policy options first? Denicotisation. Because of reducing the nicotine in cigarettes gives us the ability of reaching the smoke-free goal of 2025 of less than 5% of New Zealanders smoking, then why would we not try that first? Labour's been setting its sights on Nationals 3IC Chris Bishop, who once worked for tobacco company Philip Morris. Labour MP Rachel Boyack tweeted, Looks like getting a tobacco lobbyist into Parliament finally paid off for the tobacco industry. Vomit emoji. Former Health Minister Aisha Verrill, who drove the smoke-free changes, which are now being upturned, she backed Boyack. It is disgusting, and so yes, that warrants a vomit emoji. Here's Chris Bishop responding to those claims. Labour have pointed out your links to the tobacco industry uh, as a potential motivation behind the smoke-free changes. Can I ask your response? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I saw some sort of um, wild accusations by Aisha Verrill. I think it says more about her than it says about anything else. I mean, it's just, it's just nonsense. 
We didn't get an interview, but we got this statement from Reti, though it doesn't actually respond to his apparent change of heart on smoke-free laws. But regardless, Reti says, I want to assure New Zealanders that we aren't walking away from long-standing commitments by successive governments to reducing smoking rates. Those commitments have already seen daily smoking rates continue to decline. There are concerns that Labor's latest changes would have increased the black market for tobacco and an escalation of ram raids by concentrating retailers down to just a few suppliers. Former Health Minister, now Labour Health Spokesperson Aisha Verrill is with me now. Kia ora, Aisha, welcome back to the pod. Kia ora, thanks for having me on, Tova. Do you think that the tobacco lobby had its hand in these changes we're seeing from the incoming or the new government? I absolutely think the only people with something to gain from what's been done is vested interests, including the tobacco lobby. And certainly we've heard... Uh, really distressingly, lots of tobacco industry talking points being spouted by government ministers. It's a real shame. Have you got any evidence of that of that causal link? The tricky thing here is, uh, Tova, uh, the National Party didn't campaign on repealing smoke-free, uh, and so these sorts of changes have all happened behind closed doors uh, when the coalition negotiations were, were done. Those sorts of political discussions aren't subject to the OIA, so it's very hard for us to trace back there. But, you know, um, as I said, the only people who benefit here are the tobacco industry from being able to sell more of their cigarettes to future generations. The National Party did raise some concerns about the, the order of the, the, the policy levers, though, during the, the debates around the measures which we'll get to in a minute. But just staying on on that tweet maybe from, from Rachel Boyack, that Chris Bishop had something to do with the reversal of your smoke-free measures. Do you believe that he, he did? Look, I don't have evidence of that. I do think, however, that they have acted in a way that is... Contra- we need to judge the government by its actions, and its actions are going to harm the health of... of you know, thousands of people. The modelling we have suggests there'll be 8,000 deaths if our, if our law is, is reversed. And I think that alone is a reason to indict them. Do you think, though, because you, you said it's disgusting and warranted that vomit emoji in um, Rachel's tweet, her allegation that having a tobacco lobbyist in Parliament has paid off for the tobacco industry. Do you agree with that comment? Look, I think one of the things when you make moral decisions as a politician is that your background does influence them. And we know Chris Bishop is from a background where he has represented tobacco interests before. So I guess when he's in a cabinet making those sorts of decisions, he is more sympathetic to the tobacco industry than than others. And it's a shame that people who have medical qualifications like Dr Retty have have, uh, made a decision in in the tobacco industry's favour too. Because these are quite big claims, though, aren't they, to say that a National Party minister, a government minister, is still, what, somehow tacitly lobbying for big tobacco in Cabinet. These are enormous claims. So, again, I ask you, what, what evidence... Well, that's right, Tova. As I said, these sorts of political decisions happen behind closed doors, and that's why we, the public, don't get to have the evidence. But as I said, we should be judging the government by its op- actions, which is to, to, to make decisions in the tobacco industry's favour that will harm thousands of New Zealanders. So you think, though, that Chris Bishop is still working for the tobacco lobby in some guise? That wasn't what I said at all, Tova. However, I am deeply troubled by the decisions that they have uh, collectively made as a cabinet. But you think because of his history working for Philip Morris that that is influencing government policy direction? 
I think Chris Bishop has clearly shown he has sympathies to the tobacco industry through his work history. That's all I've said. There was a, uh, a report done last year by TBD and Infometrics that found on, on current trends we'd achieve the smoke-free target of less than 5% of adults smoking by 2026, even without your measures. What's your response to that, that, that point in the report? The uh, smoke-free goal, which was set by the National and Māori Party when they were in government, was to have uh, 5% smoking rate and also for Māori smoking to be 5%, for uh, Pacific smoking rate to be 5% as well. So actually, to achieve the goal that they set for themselves last time they were in government, you would have to have, um, uh, it would, would currently on track to have that by 2040. So we are not on track for Māori smoking to go down to that level. And that's why the changes that we introduced would have actually fixed one of our biggest problems we have in New Zealand, uh, or gone a long way to fixing that gap between Māori and uh, non-Māori life expectancy. And I'm not. I'm absolutely not um, minimising that that needs to be the, the key focus here, but just just to kind of um, drill into the the the, the uh, findings in that report. So, would we get to a all of New Zealand below five percent target by 2026, even without your measures? That's not the advice I have. Okay, there's no way on earth. No, I don't. I, I don't believe so. Uh, we, you know, and w- in the next week or so, I anticipate we'll have another New Zealand Health Survey uh, result out to see where we're at. We were at eight percent um, in last year's November report, uh, but I, I mean, I think it's highly unlikely. And we've had two sets of modelling that shows without the changes we're doing, we're not going to meet the goal. And that same report also found that your changes said that your changes were going to cost one point three billion over the next ten years. Is that right? Uh, I don't believe so, um, and you'll see that the Treasury has put its own cost in, in terms of reduced uh, revenue to the taxpayer. The Treasury put out um, hundreds of millions of dollars in, co- in reduced ta- uh, tobacco tax, which of course sadly is what uh, the Minister of Finance has said she's using to fund her tax cuts. So that's one of the other really disturbing things about these these changes is the idea that uh, National is using the misery that tobacco causes to fund tax cuts. In that, that third reading, um, they made the point that, to, to a point, the party agrees with the three policy levers, reducing retail shops, reducing nicotine and making it illegal for a certain cohort of New Zealanders born after 2009 to buy cigarettes. But they differed, um, they differed with you in terms of the order that those policy levers should be They wanted to see that nicotine reduction first. Could you not have done that and maybe got more political buy-in that would have prevented this reversal now? Absolutely not. I think what the what's happened uh, since the election is a sign that what National was saying before the election is not their position at all. They have the opportunity to um, to make those changes that they described as the third reading now. Instead, they're pulling the rug out underneath all of the smoke-free changes, meaning that we'll have uh, 8,000 additional deaths over, over the coming 20 years. If they wanted to have a logical discussion about some of the policy issues, how some of the unintended consequences that they are concerned about could be addressed, we could do that now. Do you think those 8,000 deaths, they lie at the feet of the National Party, this government, for making these changes? Is that the, the assertion you're making? Absolutely. We live in a... If, if we're to do political discourse in New Zealand, in a world of facts where there is high-quality modelling done of the, um, of the impact of a policy and another government rolls it back, then of course the responsibility for those deaths lie at their feet. And the upshot here is that you say 
the National Party will have 8,000, the deaths of 8,000 New Zealanders on their hands as a result of these changes. Indeed, I do, because that is what the modelling modelling shows. And I think, like many uh, from the health sector, I'm just absolutely shocked that this is the first thing that a National Minister of Health, who is himself a doctor, has introduced. Thank you very much for your time, Labour Health Spokesperson Aisha Beryl. Really appreciate you coming on the pod. Thanks, Tova. Not at all, not at all. Winston's allowed to make his remarks in the way that he chooses. He may not express it in the way that I do it, but honestly, we have serious challenges in this country and we are focused on those things. And so personalities and being able to build in within a team of diverse range of views, a diverse range of personalities is a good thing. One of those challenges you talk about though is faith in institutions like media and leaders. It's not helped when the Deputy Prime Minister essentially calls into question whether whether they can trust the mainstream media. Well, again, you know, he, he may not have expressed it the way that I would express it, but you know, the, the view about the public interest fund is, is a view that's held by many New Zealanders to say that was not a good program or a good idea. It is going to get harder and harder for the Prime Minister to look dignified and silently smile while his deputy snipes beside him. It's going to get harder and harder for Christopher Luxon to refuse to answer questions about the wild allegations that come bursting forth sporadically and tangentially from his 2IC Winston Peters. There are various fringe cause celeb that Peter's picked up along the campaign trail, like crumbs to help him find his way back to Parliament. And many of them are interwoven. Vaccine hesitancy, anti-trans messaging, Tadell reversal and media distrust. His party got 6% of the vote. An increase of 3.4 percentage points on his 2020 result, back when he was not fixated or campaigning on these issues. In fact, in 2020, Peters would smack down supporters who attended his town hall meetings when they'd launch off on COVID conspiratorial musings. Expectations that Peter's obsession with these issues would evaporate as he morphed back into his more statesmanly government minister avatar have been dashed with every passing coalition occasion. If you think of Christopher Luxon's big set-piece moments of the campaign, like his campaign launch, the election night party, he likes to be evocative, big gestures, rah-rah music, presidential vibes. He talks up his leadership style. All things designed to make you think, yeah, this guy's the man, he's got this, I trust him to run the country. But then if you think of all Christopher Luxon's big set-piece moments since winning the election, it's still evocative, but not for those same reasons. It's less fist pump, more wince. Less awesome, more awkward. First, there was the big coalition announcement. Setting aside the fact Luxon was forced to delay it by a day because he couldn't wrangle his support partners in time, his prime ministerial, I just conquered Everest welding this government together speech was almost instantly derailed and overshadowed by Winston Peters yelling at the mathematical morons in the media, correcting the Prime Minister and interjecting over his co-Deputy Prime Minister David Seymour. The second big government milestone, the hyper-grand business of swearing in a new government with the Governor-General, it is about as ceremonial, posh and full of pomp as it gets in New Zealand. It's a massive moment for incoming ministers, especially the Prime Minister. So Luxon pledging allegiance to His Majesty's heirs and successors rather than the King's heirs is a very human and understandable whoopsie. But then came the press conferences afterwards. Leaving aside Luxon failing to immediately shut down the prospect of renaming to Papa, because English first and all that, once again the Prime Minister was derailed and overshadowed by his deputy. 
Once again, Peter's flipped his lid at the media, this time over the egregious sin of state broadcasters daring to speak to Del Māori. And then came the incorrect allegations that the media had been bribed by the previous government. The third momentous new government moment came on Tuesday. The family photo around the cabinet table for the first time, marking this historic three-way coalition government. Once again, Peters couldn't help himself, repeating his claim that the media were bribed. Sitting right next to him, at the figurative head of the round table, the Prime Minister, Christopher Luxon, silently smiling, saying nothing in response to media questions about Peter's claims. It is getting wilder and more jaw-dropping every time. And for every anti-media attack he makes, Peters is rewarded with a flurry of dopamine fueling endorsements on social media. X, formerly Twitter, lights up with comments like these. The monies from Jacinda to the MSM had strings attached and penalties for the breach. A bribe in its purest form. It must be embarrassing being a journalist knowing that you've been bought and traded. They've all been paid to tell the former government's lies. These are the voices, often anonymous, of Peters' people now. The upshot is... They have their leader. It's not the Prime Minister, the leader of the biggest party in Parliament, Christopher Luxon, whose party National got 38% of the vote. It's Winston Peters, the 6 percenter, the Deputy Prime Minister, the man making the actual Prime Minister look like he's losing control of his government before it's even begun. That's my take. I'm interested to hear your thoughts too. Email me tova at stuff.co.nz and we will get to some of your feedback shortly. Not the start the Wars wanted for the 2024 season. Not the start we wanted as fans. Where did things go wrong? There was so much expectation around that opening game. There were 24,000 in there at Mount Smart to watch the game. We were all hoping that all the hype would be converted into a win, but it wasn't to be. Um, things didn't really go overly wrong, but I think a bit of credit has to go to their opponents, the Sharks. They really did defend superbly well, and they nullified every single attack that the Warriors could throw at them, and it got under the Warriors' skin a little bit. For news and sport that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. Newsable Sport is proudly brought to you by Sky, your sport unrivaled. It is time now for Snakes and Leaders with our National Affairs Editor for The Post and Sunday Star Times, Andrea Vance. I'm so happy to talk to you, but also so sad because this is your final pod appearance of the year. I'm getting on a plane. (laughs) <laughs> I'm leaving you all to it. I'm sorry. I'm leaving the country. <laughs> oh, fair, fair cop. All of us wishing we could trail on behind you. Let's go big or go go home today, though. We normally do winners and losers of the week. Let's do it for the entire year to make this worthwhile or to really hammer it home. Who is your Who is your winner of the year? This is this was a tough assignment. <laughs> it's been a hell of a year. It really um, has. I guess winner. The Tova podcast? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, it's in there. That's all. You may you may get on your plane now. No, I'm kidding. I mean, I think you. It has to be Christopher Luxon. I mean, I know it, it doesn't feel like it this week, but um, he did it. He pulled it out of the bag. He. Someone said to me in an interview for a piece I did after the election. You know, talk about a man who peaked right on time, mm-hmm. and he did because there were great doubts whether he would be able to get through the campaign without screwing it up. Labour were really, really um, relying on on Chris Hipkins being the better campaigner and it turned out that Luxon just really came into his own and obviously romped, well, not quite romped home. He's got a share par, obviously, but uh, yeah, so he's 
he's got to be the winner of the year. Whether that continues into next year remains to be seen. <laughs> I, it, it, there's a sense of that the absolute chaos at the moment, isn't there? But also that the business of government will kind of prevail after the the, the kind of circus um, circus leaves town a bit. So I think Peter's probably putting him through his paces. But then it's hard to pick as well. Who knows? Maybe Peter's putting him through his paces now maybe this is actually how it's going to go for the next year I don't know I, I know I know that's the prevailing wisdom with Winston the prevailing Winston wisdom um <laughs> that he settles back into government it's all fine I feel like we are seeing a very different Winston mm. this is a man with not much to lose now and yeah I don't know I think he's got more of an edge uh he's more combative than ever and I just, yeah, it feels very different to me this time. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think all of those expectations that he would have shifted into that statesmanly kind of version of himself, it would have happened now. Usually usually it does happen, but he seems to have gone full throttle back into that campaign mode. Does he make an appearance on your Loser of the Year shortlist? Well, in a sense, in a sense, I'm going to end the year by tolling a very bleak bell. <laughs> I'm very worried about the, the weakening of our democratic institutions. We've seen that a lot in the UK and we've seen it in the US and I feel mm-hmm. like I, I always say that New Zealand's kind of five or six years behind those trends and I feel like that's what we're seeing now. We've seen it. The Electoral Commission had one job and did a really bad job, which has undermined mm-hmm. confidence in our elections, our democratic process. Now we've got Winston attacking the media, which w- whether you like it or not is an important pillar of democracy. And just the other night we saw Tamitha Paul, a new Green MP on TikTok, claiming that the election wasn't fair. And I, I don't, I actually don't think that she realised the consequences of what mm. she's saying. But you cannot, as an elected politician, without basis, just because you lose, you cannot undermine the public's faith. So I just think that that's something that we really have to be on our guard for. And I hope it... I hope it's just been a mad year and everyone's a bit just gone a bit crazy and we'll settle back into the norms because but I do think it's something that we need to keep a watching brief on so that's a cheerful thought to end the year on <laughs> no no it, it, it's a really important one to end the year on and I think I, I was really disappointed that the Prime Minister in his post cabinet press conference this week didn't completely pour cold water on some of just the absolutely kind of vile allegations that are that are mm. pouring forth from Winston Peters at the moment I thought that was a real missed opportunity from Chris Luxon um, and w- what about any honourable or or dishonourable mentions for the year, possibly too many to count. I think local government, the model and existing councils are currently just in huge problems. We've seen it in Hamilton, Auckland, Wellington, as they all are grappling with their long-term, their 10-year budget. So I think one of the the most pressing issues that the government's going to have to deal with immediately is three waters, what they're going to do by that and how we're going to fund really crumbling infrastructure, but also the shape of what lo- local government looks like because the current model is broken, the funding model is broken, mm. people aren't voting, you know, they're very apathetic. So I guess it's a, it's a kind of a big picture kind of honourable mention, but I do think it's something that we're it's going to be an issue. That and water are going to be such a big issue over the next year to two years. Yeah, thank you. And that's, that sets us up um, well for the next time that we speak to you on the podcast. I think you've you've paved the way for a lot of the big, well, all the big issues um, that we're going to be staring down next year. Andrea, it's been amazing having you on the pod and I wish you the very, 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 very best Christmas and New Year's and break. Well deserved. Aww, thank you. And to you, well done for a stonking year. I look forward to working with you in the new year. If I come back, I might not come back. No, I'm kidding. Stop. <laughs> You're putting a tracking device on your passport. Thank you. Thanks so much. Much, Andrea. Take good care.
All right, let us get to the beehive buzz with our political editor, Luke Malpass. What a weird and wonderful week it has been, Luke. Hasn't it, though? New government and, um, you know, but most of us spent talking about Winston Peters and Smokes, really. Exactly. But we have finally, I think, after a lot of the chaos and the, frankly, crazy, we have now got this 100-day plan from the government. Some of it's vague, some of it's weird, a lot of it's repealing, but also a really ambitious policy agenda within it all as, as well. Can they get it done? Oh, look, the stuff that I've signalled that I'm going to repeal before Christmas, I think they can, because mostly it's just repeals. I'll stick to house, no urgency. Uh, Parliament's sitting up to the 20th, so quite late this year, so I think they will get all of that done. All right, so the rest of it, all the languages, we'll start looking at this, we'll take the first steps to that. Yeah, all three parties in the government think they'll voted to change things up a lot in New Zealand, and so they're trying to get a few runs on the board early um, with, I guess, the, the law hanging fruit, right? For sure, for sure. And uh, can you give us a bit of a sense as well as to what we can expect over the next week in terms of you know the fires of Parliament being stoked up again? So the business of the House, the, the you know the Speaker maiden speeches, and what question time's going to look like as well? Because that's that's where the fire is really going to take place, isn't it? Thursday, from memory, is is going to be the first question time. So this is the first time that you know Chris Hopkins will face up to Christopher Luxon with their roles reversed. I think we can expect just based on how the Labour guys seem to be in the spring in their step, that they are actually kind of quite spoiling for a fight. I can't wait. I'm bringing my popcorn down. I'm going to see you in the front row up there in the press gallery. I'm really, really looking forward to this. We're going to have a massive slew of maiden speeches, but it's that fiery question time from two o'clock that um, is going to be all eyes on for political dorks like us. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Thank you so much, Luke. I'll see you. I'll see you very soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Tyler. Now it's time for one of my favourite, favourite bits of the pod because I get to hear from you. And if you want to get in touch, tova at stuff.co.nz is the way to do it. Producer Chris is here with me now and with some of your emails this week. How, how are you going, Chris? I'm good. I just want to clarify something because I know that you're all about accuracy. Uh-huh. At the top of the pod, mm. you said that feedback was the highlight of your week. Oh, yeah. Without any qualifications, and now you're saying it's one of your favourite bits of the pod. I watered it down because I felt like coming straight off the back of Luke and Andrea, um, I might get oh, throttled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough, I also, too. They're also my favourites. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now, actually, they're my favourite. Oh, right. I've been relegated. You've been relegated. <laughs> That's how quickly I can change my me. mind. Okay, very <laughs> capricious. Um, is that the right word? Mercurial. Mercurial. Like Winston Peters. Okay. Yes, very good. Thank yeah, so it's been a packed show this week. It sure has. My goodness, <laughs> it really has. And I'm, but I'm glad. I feel like this was one of the really big surprises of the coalition agreement. National did not campaign on this. And, you know, it's something that public health experts have just been jaws on the floor, really um, upset and and bothered by. So I think I'm, I'm glad that we, mm. we spent the time, took the time to drill into to smoke-free laws and we're really keen to hear your feedback on this as well next week. Definitely. Please do get in touch, tova at stuff.co.nz. But for this week, we're going to start off with a point of clarification Uh-oh. from one of our listeners. Alistair wrote to say... Hi Tova, you've said that this will be New Zealand's first official three-party coalition. What about the key government with acting to party Māori and then there was Labour, New Zealand first and the Greens? Ha, I know this one, I know this one, I know this one. Yes, thank you very much for your, um, God, such a smart ass. Thank you very much for your email, Alistair. Yes, 
there have been deals involving three parties and many, many more before actually um, in the case of Sir John Key. Uh, but this is the first time that we've had three coalition partners around the cabinet table together. And that comes with all the added complexities of collective responsibility, um, where you just need to abide by the decision of the the government, also how you agree to disagree. Um, And those other governments that you mentioned, they weren't full-blown coalition deals. So that 2008 national-led government that was um, national, having confidence in supply arrangements with a whole bunch of people, United Future Act, Te Party Māori, it meant he could dip, John Key could dip in and dip out depending on who he needed for support of various different things. Uh, And those, those minor parties, they didn't have ministers in cabinet. Likewise, in 2017, Labour and New Zealand First were coalition partners sitting around the cabinet table together, but the Greens were in a confidence and supply arrangement. Yes. Now, uh, I don't think that we do this job expecting that everyone's going to like everything we put out, do we? <laughs> that would be very foolish Just indeed. Take, take a little glimpse. I noticed that Tova was trending again on Twitter last week. I was like, oh God, here we go again. Uh, so we get feedback that we're pro-right and pro-left. So I guess that's something we kind of, no one likes us. That's not completely true. true. We had a lovely email from Marybeth in the beautiful East Cape. I've just listened to your Stub podcast for the first time. I really appreciate your honest, sensible and extensive coverage of our current political situation, she writes. I've been wary of what this new government coalition entails to my whanau, to our hardworking Kiwis and the vulnerable in our community. Listening to the pitches of our supposed leaders, it was like we're at the start of The Handmaid's Tale. I take solace in the fact that our media still has a gem like you, who can give a balanced discussion of certain issues that affect our country. I very like your final point. Thank you very much, and thank you so much for listening as well, Maribeth. Uh, I'm definitely hearing a lot of fears from people on the left about what this new government will mean for the country, but likewise those on the right. Um, I went to a, a lunch with... Um, kind of business owners uh, and probably a a more right-wing crowd um, just this week and they're really looking forward to the the direction that the new government's taking. So it always depends where you sit on the spectrum, right? And I think National and Labour are both very centrist parties, centre-left, centre-right, but with this current makeup, yes, Chris Luxon is presiding over probably the most right-wing government under MNP, though, you know, also maybe mitigated by New Zealand First because they're kind of left, right, left, right, all over the shop. Um, whether the, whether it all kind of spells Handmaid's Tale or Happily Ever After, yeah, depends depends how you voted. Thank you very much for listening and, and getting in touch. You're a gem. I'm a very rough diamond. Uh, to counter... I feel like that's better. Huh? Being a diamond. Oh, sorry. All right, then. You're, you're, I'm just a you're a gem, full stop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm nothing. No, uh, you're, <laughs> you're a diamond. Uh, anyway, to, our ca- diamond. to counter that, and finally for this week, Dean has a very succinct message. Go Luxon! Although I can't guarantee that he put quite so many O's into it when he wrote. Wow, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Dean. Thank you, Chris, for that rendition. That was a, a learning from the team chant that my daughter's netball team that I coached. Oh, she would be so proud. <laughs> You've been listening to Tova, hosted and produced by me, Tova O'Brien. There's a new episode every Thursday. You can listen to them all at stuff.co.nz slash Tova or wherever you get your podcasts. If you follow us on your favourite podcast app, ta-da, you'll get the latest episode automatically. 
and keep an eye on the feed for bonus shortcasts as well. Thank you to our production team, Aaron Darman, our audio editor, magician Connor Scott, and executive producer Chris Reed. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. A week is a long time in politics. Anything could happen. We got you. Kakite. This pod took time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz slash support. Mark, if we look at News Hub, the potential of that closing its entire operation in June, the cuts at TVNZ, what's at risk here? Well, look, we get into this whole thing, you know, democracy is at risk, but News Hub from their first days always tried to do things a little bit differently and may have been considered a little bit more sort of kick-ass and less respectful to the politicians. But you need that. I mean, our job is not to be sort of cheerleaders for whoever. It should be to sort of to question and to, and to keep people informed. If you don't have a news media sort of calling people out, it's the wild west. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsville wherever you get your podcasts.